And so when you talk about causes and conditions, causes and conditions of what? My alcoholism. What is my alcoholism? We say the word alcoholic. Are we talking about the way I drink? Well, certainly. We talk about that when an alcoholic drinks, he has no ability to know what's going to happen. He can't set a target and stick to the target. Eventually, he's going to miss it. But alcoholism is more than just being a heavy drinker. Alcoholism is about the way I think, the way I feel, what's going on underneath everything. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the voice of Mr. David G. You heard on the beginning of this episode today, David G. is going to be talking about step four, the fourth step. Uh, throughout this entire episode. Uh, We started to record it. uh, We were going to talk about uh, several different steps, uh, four, five, and six, but we just got through one. You'll hear us talking about that on the beginning of this episode. But uh, I just got back from a incredible yoga class. And I know that's not why you're tuning into this, uh, but I just felt like sharing it. Uh, The teacher who was there tonight, uh, it was just one of those perfect storm scenarios. Uh, She had an incredible music playlist. Uh, She uses uh, uh, essential oils, and the smell of the oils was uh, uh, absolutely great. Uh, uh, She does great lighting in the room, and then she does a great class at the same time. So... Um, anyway, I'm just, uh, I'm still kind of relishing in that, but I'm going to do an episode here anyway. And, uh, just so you know, we're going to do listener feedback at the end of the episode here today, but first things first, this episode is brought to you by Tracy S and Alan R. Tracy S and Alan R went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the Donate tab and made a contribution. Thank you so, so much for your generous contribution, Tracy and Alan. Uh, We could not do this without you. This episode is for you. Now, we're going to let all the other SoberSpeak listeners uh, listen in, but this episode is for you, or as I like to say, this buds for you. Maybe that's not appropriate, but hey, I'm not always appropriate. Anyway, so um, there are so many different ways to get a hold of me nowadays, uh, and I'm going to talk about one new one. So I have, a, I guess, a three ask of you. Number one, if 
indeed you are enjoying this podcast, please, please share it with a friend or a family member. Just pause your device and share that link uh, so they can enjoy uh, people like David G as well. You can follow me on Instagram if you haven't already. We get a lot of activity out there. That's at Sober Speak, all one word. And, uh, a new way to, it's not, it's kind of new, it's kind of old, right? But we have a Facebook secret group. Now this group was set up about a year ago and it's my fault. I really haven't put much uh, uh, effort into it, but we have a lot of folks in there already. And just this week, we got a lot of activity. Uh, You know, what it comes down to is if me and other people actually contribute to the group, we get some activity in there. And so I'm ready to kind of start putting that uh, Facebook group out there. Uh, Up to this point, I've been so busy, I just didn't even want to deal with it. But it is a secret group. So you can't find it by uh, just searching for it in Facebook. Uh, But if you email me your um, uh, email address that is associated with your Facebook account, uh, just send it to john at soberspeak.com. I will send you an invite and you can be in our Facebook group, our secret Facebook group. It's a Sober Speak Facebook secret group is what it is. And just so you know, the reason that we keep a secret and the only reason that we keep a secret is to protect people's anonymity. And uh, it's just the right thing to do. I thought about making it a closed group at one point, but I've gone on to making it a uh, secret group. So that's it. Now enjoy David. Once again, we'll have listener feedback at the end of David's talk. Enjoy. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here one more time and with Mr. David G. And the reason David is back is because David did steps one, two, and three. By the way, that's episode number 59. If you haven't listened to that yet, I would highly recommend it. It is actually believe it or not, David, I don't know if you know this or not, the number one Sober Speak uh, episode of all time. I finally made it number one at something. That's right. You are number one. All right. So David is, uh, so he did steps one, two, and three on episode 59. And then I had a listener, uh, actually a couple of listeners write in and asked me if we could continue the steps with David. And uh, so he is back here today. And, and here in the Texas area, which we're, where we are from, we have what are called step speakers. Okay, What this usually looks like in our area is that you will have an individual who is committed to go back to a group four times during that month. Usually they'll do steps one, two, and three on the first week, steps four, five, and six on the second week, and et cetera. So, so that'll last the entire month. And David is a, what you would call a step speaker. He has done the, the steps many times over for several different groups. And so I thought it'd be fantastic to have him back in. And we're going to start on four today. Now, I can't guarantee we're going to get through four, five, and six, but we'll just see where we end up. And then I plan on br- bringing David back in for some additional uh, 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 to to finish out the steps uh, throughout the year. And just in case you want to hear more episodes with David, he is also on episode number six, 
That episode is called Billy Graham and Ted Nugent because I kind of consider David a combination of Billy Graham and Ted Nugent. And I mean that in a very complimentary way. Uh, And you'll see once he starts uh, talking here, if you haven't heard him before, why I say that. And then we also have him on episode number 14, which is called Convincing Mr. Hyde. Now, with all that being said, Mr. David... Let's go into the fourth step and uh, what are some of your first thoughts that come up when you think about step number four? By the way, let's go ahead and say step four is, uh, oh man, I'm blanking right now. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That's right. So we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and go ahead and share your thoughts on that just to kind of start us out. Well, I think I'll start with the misconceptions I had about it for the the years that I was an active member of AA but wasn't staying sober because I really hadn't worked the steps from the book. I kind of saw the fourth step as this boogeyman where I was going to have to disclose my deep, dark, shameful secrets that I could never utter to another person. And not to say that that's not necessary for sobriety, but it turns out when you read the big book and you look at it, it's not really about dirty, dark secrets. In fact, most of my dirty little secrets I had shared with my sponsor in step one because they happened to be the abnormal behaviors that I had when I got drunk, most of them. Um, And so it turns out that when you go into step four, it's really talking about the causes and conditions of my addiction, my, my alcoholism. And what better way to get me to loosen up then ask me to talk about the things that piss me off, <laughs> the things about the world that I find objectionable, the things about people, the people in my personal life, my family, my coworkers, people in traffic, the checker at the grocery store, the guy in front of me in line who's supposed to have 10 items and has 30, um, all the different things in life that I find objectionable in terms of people, and then also institutions, things that I had resentments against. It might, for me, it wasn't really the church. I was raised a Methodist. It's a pretty low-key religion. You're just to be nice to people, but I do hear a lot in meetings about people having issues with how they were raised in a church life. And, and my sponsees, you know, they tell me how it's so hard for them to go back to God because of the resentments and anger they have toward their church life as a child. You know, we're in the South, it's very Bible beltish, and there's a lot of beautiful things about all of the organized religion here, but there's also some scary things that, you know, as a little kid, people aren't able to digest. And then principles. Things in the world around me that I, that people believe, people live by, that I find objectionable. I'll tell you one that comes from my religious upbringing, and I don't think it was a Methodist thing. I think it was just one Sunday school teacher's thing. But I remember being in church in Sunday school as a, a kid. I was going to uh, be confirmed in seventh grade, I think, or sixth grade. And I got into a basically a shouting match when my Sunday school teacher told me that all of my friends who were Jewish were going to go to hell because they hadn't taken Jesus. And I went to Green Hill, which is a school in Dallas that's predominantly Jewish, and all of my friends came from beautiful families that practiced the Jewish faith, and I just wasn't going to hear it. And so that would be for me a, a resentment that I had towards a principle that I really struggled with. Now, it turns out that that was a, a phantom in my head, because that's really not necessarily a belief that uh, comes from that particular brand of religion. But for me, it was a sticking point. It was a sticking point in believing in God. It's almost as if I believed that my resentments towards other people's beliefs were somehow supposed to interfere with my ability to believe in God. 
And so when you look at the program and what AA is about, you know, it talks about that we have this spiritual experience that solves all of our problems, that the the main purpose of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is to give me a connection with a higher power that will solve all of my problems. Well, these resentments, these sticking points, these things that I'm very easily able to talk about, these are the things that initially I need to look at so that I can see what keeps me from having a relationship with God. For example, you're a newcomer, you come to a meeting, you're losing, you've lost your job, your wife's kicking you out, you have a DWIs and you're looking at going to jail, you don't know necessarily where you're going to sleep that night. I mean, maybe you didn't hit that kind of bottom. I did. And you come to a meeting and you're freaking out and you don't know what you're going to do, complete despair and fear. And you talk to someone after the meeting and they say, let go and let God. Just give it to God. Just give it to your higher power. What does that even mean to a newcomer? If I were capable of just giving it to God, I probably never would have needed AA in the first place. Instead of drinking away my problems, I would have just given them to God and everything would have been fine. And what interfered with my ability to even conceive of what it meant to believe that I could give something to a higher power were all of these things running around in my head all the time, like 30 hamsters on a wheel fighting for the space in my brain. These arguments I had with myself towards other people, people who weren't even in the room. I remember when I was about, you know, maybe eight months sober and I was really working the program and this woman, Dottie, who went to my group, um, uh, was sharing about how if you're alone in a room and you're having a conversation, even if your lips aren't moving, that that's insanity. That if you're actively arguing with someone and maybe your lips are moving or you're even uttering words, other people might be able to recognize your insanity. And it can get so bad that you can just be walking down the street arguing with yourself full till at another person and no one's there but you. And what I was thinking about as everyone in the room was laughing is what, what are you supposed to think about? Because I spent so much of my time having conversations with people, trying to set them straight, set them into understanding what I was trying to get at, trying to explain myself to them, trying to make them feel bad or even shame them about the way they judged me and misunderstood who I was, how they didn't forgive me, how they were hypocrites. They talked all about being forgiving, loving Christian people, and yet they looked at me as if I was some kind of lowlife. The problem with most of that was is that the reason I thought people looked at me like a lowlife is because I felt like I was a lowlife. That was the view I had of myself. And so when you talk about causes and conditions, causes and conditions of what? My alcoholism. What is my alcoholism? We say the word alcoholic. Are we talking about the way I drink? Well, certainly. We talk about that when an alcoholic drinks, he has no ability to know what's going to happen. He can't set a target and stick to the target. Eventually, he's going to miss it. But alcoholism is more than just being a heavy drinker. Alcoholism is about the way I think, the way I feel, what's going on underneath everything. And the number one problem with alcoholics, according to our literature, is resentment. And so what I'm looking at here, yeah, there are some deep, dark secrets because my resentments led me to behaviors that I had shame about, that I had guilt, that I humiliated myself, that I not only caused suffering to other people, I caused suffering to myself based on these resentments. These resentments propelled me into a life where hurting other people was justified because they deserved it because of my resentment. So just a little breakdown of what it looks like. I mean, you can open up to the the book and look at the three columns, and many people, including myself, believe that you make a fourth column. 
But the, the philosophy behind this for me, what I get out of it when I look at it, is first you put down someone's name that you find irritating. Easy to do. There's lots of irritating people in the world. Put them down. And then in the second column, you write about what they have done that you are so irritated by, what they have done that I find so unforgivable or can't get past, why I keep thinking about it, what it is, what is the nature of it. And you really get deep with it. And that's not hard for me because I spent a lot of time thinking about what other people had done wrong. <laughs> you know, it was not a heavy challenge for me to do that. And then there's a little bit more of a challenge in looking at in the third column what it is that is affected in me. You know, the big book gives you kind of a checklist, you know, but you can go beyond the checklist in the big book and look, you know, of it, which all ends up with being fear, but looking at what is really threatened in me by their behavior. How is their behavior harming me? How is their behavior affecting me? Again, not hard for a self-centered person to do. I basically look at everyone's behavior in relation to how it affects me. So if I'm thinking about people's negative, difficult, harmful behavior, of course I'm going to think about how it affects me because I'm thinking about myself all the time. Then you get to the fourth column, which is the challenging column. And I think the challenge of the fourth column comes in one little short paragraph. And I'm not going to try and quote the whole paragraph, but I'll say the part about it that seems the hardest. It says, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done entirely. And I can tell you for sure, I've had a couple conversations over the past couple of weeks. When you pose that question to other people, they pause mm -hmm. and they say, that is difficult. And I say, well, this is where the work comes in. Yep. It's the hard part. You know, we say alcohol, uh, AA is simple but not easy. That's the not easy part, particularly if someone has really hurt us. You know, something that doesn't really hurt isn't that hard for me to forgive. Something that I, a person that I think is contrite has apologized to me, I'm usually a big enough guy that I can accept their apology. In fact, I welcome other people's contrition. The problem is a lot of the people on my list are people that in my view do not have contrition, do not have a problem with what they're doing, actively go around hurting people, including me, and don't aren't really aware of it. Thus, I have these conversations in my head with them where I'm pointing out to them how their behavior is harmful to other people. In that very conversation that I've had with myself for years and years and years is the poison that I'm taking and hoping the other person dies, which is a little AA dark humor. It's like putting a gun to your head and saying, stop or I'll shoot. And I'm talking about putting the gun to my head. Um, these, these thoughts, whether they're justified, whether they're real, whether they're actually even happening are really irrelevant because what that second column does is it propels me into believing that it's okay for me to treat you the way I think you deserve to be treated. So whether or not you've really done these awful things that I believe you've done, and whether you meant to do them or not, or it was just an accident, the problem for me is that I take those as an excuse to behave in ways. I take money from you. I lie to you. I mislead you. I cheat you. I talk about you behind your back. I gossip about you. On and on and on. Behaviors that rot the soul for me are justified to me because of the way I believe you deserve to be treated. So what do I do about it? You know, the there are pragmatic things in AA. You know, when we finish step three and we take that third step prayer, the third step prayer says things like, relieve me of the bondage of self. Take away my difficulties. 
Now, I love to take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help because I like to have my difficulties taken away. But what are my difficulties? Are my difficulties that I can't pay my rent? Are my difficulties that I, I don't have a nice enough house? That's I don't pretty sure that's not what they're talking about. So. My difficulty is my separation from my fellow man and God. The bondage of self is this bondage to my thinking that tells me I know what's going on. I know what your motives are. I know you meant to do that. I know when you are whispering in the corner and laughing, you are whispering in the corner and laughing about me. That's the bondage of self, that I am consumed with this idea that not only is the world wrong around me, but it is my job to figure out what is wrong and not even really try to fix it, just identify it and live with it and be miserable because of it. So what does it tell me to do? It tells me to look at these people like I would cheerfully treat a sick friend, to recognize that these people, like me, are sick. They don't mean to be sick. They don't want to be sick but they're sick. And I don't like what their symptoms look like. This is just stuff straight from the book. I don't like what their symptoms look like, but like me, they're sick. And so it goes on to say, then, then we need to pray for them, that we can kind, for our, ourselves too, that we can kindly treat them like we would treat a sick friend. And then the hardest part, you know, you talk about difficult instructions like that putting out of your mind uh, the wrongs others have done. The next instruction is to ask God to show me how I can be helpful to this person, which is absolutely the last thing that comes through my mind when I am struck with a resentment. When I am struck with a resentment, the conversation that goes on my head is how I'm going to straighten this person out. How am I going to straighten this institution out? How am I going to make the outcome of this relationship the way I need it to be so I can be happy? Yeah, the uh, 12 and 12 even suggests that I go out of my way to be kind to those who have uh, wronged me in my in, in my uh, mind. Yeah, and, and sometimes they have wronged us. And- so let, let's talk about that real quick. Right. So, and this is another piece that comes up a lot of time during four steps. Uh, before people have even started a four step and started writing it down, they're thinking about the ways that they have been, or, or you know, sometimes they actually have been abused as mm-hmm. ki- as kids, right. and they really did not have a, quote, part in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a difficult subject. Uh, you know, sometimes it's sexual abuse, sometimes it's physical abuse, sometimes it's emotional abuse, whatever it is, mm-hmm. but they've gone down that road. So will you address that a little bit for the, uh, for the listeners here? Well, I'm going to jump ahead to address that, but then I'm going to come back. Where I go with that in my life is to that part of the promises where it says no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see where our experience can benefit others. And so there are things that happened to me in my childhood. I mean, I'm going to be uh, specific about them because that's not important, but there are things that happened to me as a child that I was blameless. I was a child. Not to say I was a great kid because I wasn't a great kid, but the things that happened to me that I'm talking about weren't didn't have anything to do with me being a good kid or a bad kid. It had to do with me being around adults who were boundaryless and had bad intentions. And so when I look back on those things, you know, for a lot of years in my life, those things, the way those seeds grew in my life is they grew into very ugly and awful behavior on my part. 
Um, I took, I, I became a boundaryless person in many ways. I treated the people around me often the way that I had been treated, not on purpose. It was just what I knew. Like my visceral reaction to certain situations was to behave very similarly to the way I was treated. Even if it wasn't to a small child, it might be to an adult or in an adult situation where I just had bad reactions because I never really wanted to look at that stuff. Much less like we just talked about when we're talking about resentments, see where I could be helpful. I didn't take the responsibility of this is my life. It is my past. I cannot change it. I don't like it. I'm not supporting it. I don't think it's a wonderful thing. I'm not signing off on anyone else's behavior, but this is my experience. How can this experience, how can I bring this forward in my life through my new relationship with God and be a benefit to other people? And I can tell you right now, in the past 25 years, I have stumbled across many a sponsee, many a person after a meeting who heard me speak and needed to talk to me after the meeting in the car, many a friend in the program who knew enough about me that when they were suffering through these same type of difficulties of maturing through these hard things in the past that we went and sat in the car for an hour and got graphic and down to earth real about who we were as a child and who that made us become as an adult and what we were going to do now to take responsibility for that and responsibility for that in the AA program isn't blaming ourselves it's not letting other people off the hook It's seeing where the things that I've been through and overcome and walked through and started to have some dignity can be helpful to a new person who doesn't see a roadmap to that place. So getting back to the, I guess, the technical piece, if you will, of the, uh, and, and, you know, some people are going to understand what you're talking about with the columns and, and, and the fourth right. column, but there are people who have never really embarked on this process. And mm-hmm. there's going to be some people listening going, what does he mean by those columns? So uh, just kind of explain in general, from a technical perspective, what the four-step looks like as one is going through it. All right. First, I want to say a little disclaimer. 20 people can read the big book and look at the instructions in the big book, and 20 people can go into a room by themselves and follow those instructions, and probably there's going to be 20 slightly different variations on what they got from those instructions. And that's the case with sponsors. In terms of a sponsor, I do what my sponsor showed me how to do. There's some things that I've learned along the way from other people, and part of this thing is learning that there's perspectives, and so I don't necessarily sponsor exactly the way my sponsor sponsored, and my sponsorship isn't necessarily exactly the same as it was 15, 20 years ago. But the point is, is that it is, to my knowledge and to the best of my ability, something that is a reflection of what the big book is telling me to do. What Bill Wilson did that he put down on paper to show us, okay, this is the roadmap. And maybe the roadmap doesn't look exactly the same with the exact same turns left and right, but we're all searching for the same destination. And I say that because this can be controversial. And what I, what I have learned through the years and what has softened about me through the years is there are many, many paths that AA puts out in front of many, many people, and none of them are wrong as long as they give us a relationship with God that solves our problems. Okay, so what we did is we did it kind of in a step study sort of way. I would meet with my sponsor every week. We had a set appointment. It was Friday at the noon meeting, and we'd go into the back room at the Trinity Group in Dallas, a now defunct group, but still, well, they have a little thing going on uh, still, but just one meeting a week. But this was a big group, and we would go to the back, and he would have given me an assignment. And for the fourth step, he would have me like one week write down a list of people, just a list of people, institutions 
emotions, concepts, things that I struggled with. And so talk to people about institutions and what you mean by that. Institution, like it says in the book, like institutions and principles. And a lot of times people get, they can kind of place the people part, but what about the institutions and the principles? Okay, like an institution could be anything like the Dallas Police Department or the IRS or uh, public education or the church or anything like that. An institution and in, in what would be my problem? You know, I could look back on the experience that I had at Green Hill and feel like I wasn't treated the same because I wasn't wealthy. And so that's not just an institution. It's also a principle that rich kids get better treatment because their dad can donate a library. Uh, which probably happens in the world, right? Um, there's principles like just simple things. The rich get richer. And, you know, you don't like that principle if you're not rich. But if you, <laughs> if you, if you aren't rich, then it kind of bugs you that you have to work so much harder than people who get a head start. And it's not that you don't like the people necessarily, although when you're spiritually sick, you might find yourself. I, I'm talking about other people. I might find myself at my bad moment spiritually really having kind of a loathing for people who got such a head start in life because they came from a wealthy family. And at other times when I'm super feeling spiritually well. I think about how well I've done in my life and how grateful I am for that and how being around people who were from successful families gave me a roadmap to success. So the same people who I might on a bad day be irritated by on another day I might be grateful for because I recognize that God put things in my life that were always there to show me the way. So the principles that are the problem are the principles that interfere with me having a relationship with people. I have struggled with politics. We won't talk about what way I've struggled with politics, but I bet if you talk to half the people in the United States of America, and I'm not talking about any specific half, that there's been a lot of people struggling with politics lately. And the principles and the institutions of politics of late, and you know what? The truth is it's probably been for since the beginning of humanity, but the ones that I'm talking about are the ones that du jour, right? The ones that we're having to cope with today. Some of those principles and some of those institutions to me are things that when I think about really hard, I get angry. And when I, ha- when I uh, am with a friend and that conversation might start up, instead of recognizing, hey, man, he, he is a smart guy, and I know that he has valid viewpoints and what he's basing his viewpoints and his experience and his life on, I, I respect that. I might instead say, you know what, I never want to eat lunch with him again. So if these things are interfering with my life and my ability to have relationships, that's part of my spiritual sickness. And if these things are avenues for me to have better relationships with other people, because there are principles that I don't like, that I can sit down with someone when I'm having a good spiritual day, and I can have conversations with people, and instead of judging them as not being smart because they don't agree with me, right? Like that makes any sense. David the crackhead (laughs) who goes to AA every day just so he can have a successful life. Just, Just because they don't have opinions that agree with mine, instead of judging them, how do I get to a place where I can learn from them and, and develop empathy, develop actual caring and understanding of another person's viewpoints with respect that we have differences? And, you know, learning to go from, you know, you can talk about, it reminds me of when people say, you know, your glass is always half full. Or your glass is always half empty. I guess if you're in a good mood, people think, wow, your glass is always half full. And if you're in a bad mood, people want to say your glass is always half empty. The problem with that is, is just because I know that my I, I'm, you know, all dogged faced because I think my glass is half empty, I don't get to just say, you know, I'm going to change my attitude. If I had that power, 
to just change my attitude, to just put life in perspective, to just be a nicer guy, I would be what I think we call normies. I wouldn't need to go to AA. I wouldn't need the 12 steps because I would have developed that framework naturally. And so when we talk about the fourth step, and we talk about institutions and principles, when I put those institutions and principles down, it is the same thing. When I get to that point of recognizing what it is in me that is being affected, what is the fear that is being called, called up and turned into this anger, and then I look at, okay, what is my part? I'm going to put out of my mind, am I judging their judgmentalness? Am I not the judgmental one? Am I the person looking at a church? And instead of looking at all the beautiful things the church does, I look at some of the hypocrites in the church that have caused damage to the church, that the very church itself wants to bring back in and heal because they know it's sick. In other words, how am I viewing these principles and institutions? Am I, is it from the eye of God Or is it from the eye of the self-centered, jealous, angry child that is fearful about what other people think about me? That makes sense. Uh, In fact, uh, I heard uh, somebody once say, uh, when I'm looking at people in church or whatever organization it may be and saying, uh, uh, there's a bunch of hypocrites in there, um, they'll say, well, come on down, brother. We got room for one. Right. (laughs) Just like an Alcoholics Anonymous. All right. We will be continuing our conversation with Mr. David G in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. You can also find the donate button on our website. If the spirit moves you to use such, you can. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. David G. So we were kind of going through the technical piece. I asked you about the principles and uh, 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 institutions, kind of got you off track a little bit there. So let's go back into the the, the technical piece of it. You know, like, uh, uh, as you said, People will interpret it in a different way. Um, what, is it, what does it look like as you're actually going through the four step? So let's move on from resentments because, you know, we could talk about resentments and how we inventory them uh, ad nauseum. Um, let's talk about uh, fears a little bit because the fear... So in, there are basically... Uh, three sections kind of break to the inventory. Back. There's, There's three... Resentment, yep. fears, and your sex conduct. Um, so when you get into the fear section, it's a little bit different. It doesn't have a diagram for you on the page, you know, talking about Mrs. Jones and blah, blah, blah. It actually just kind of gives you in paragraph form what you're looking for in fear. So I'll tell you the way that I break down fears with my sponsees and the way it was broken down for me. So you have the same four columns. Uh, the first column is to name the fear. The second column is to, to write about what it is that scares you, what it is that you are concerned about, what keeps you up at night. So give people some examples before you move on from that. Of, uh, because I, I will, uh, I've sat down with countless people, I'm sure you have as well, yep. who say, well, I don't, I don't really have any fears. Right. 
And so, and then, but once they, you know, kind of pray about it and start thinking about it a little bit more, they generally find out that, you know, they're afraid of many, many different things. So talk about some examples of fears and how to get past that block. Okay. Well, real basic ones that um, are real kind of obvious. Like I fear the IRS. So my second column would be, I fear that the IRS is going to go through my taxes and discover that I didn't file or claim or over uh, stated or whatever, and that they're going to come and get me and take away my bank accounts and take away my home and garnish my wages and put me in jail and blah, 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 blah. Um, so in the third column, you then put um, how self-reliance has failed you. So self-reliance, how has self-reliance failed me? Well, self-reliance has failed me because when I have done my taxes in the past, I have chosen not to pay the full amount that I should pay, or I didn't file for two or three years because I didn't think I had the money, or I was scared, or I was drunk and didn't keep good records or whatever. Self-reliance failed me because I didn't do the nuts and bolts things that I am expected to do as a United States citizen. So the fourth column of that would be, well, what would God have you do instead? And what God would have me do instead is to be honest and forthright and pay my part. So that's a real simple one, kind of nuts and bolts. The IRS wants their money. If you cheat the IRS out of your money, you should be scared. (laughs) And self-reliance fails us because at the moment we're trying to decide whether to keep some of that money in our pocket or send it to them. Some of us go, you know what, I'm going to send it to them. And others say, you know what, I'm going to keep it in my pocket. And what should we do instead? Well, if we don't want that fear, stop doing that. So I would call that kind of the stop doing that fears, (laughs) right? If you have fear of something that you can stop doing, then stop doing it. Therein lies the problem. You could say that that's like saying to a newcomer who walks into the room who's losing everything, just give it to God. If I could just stop doing things, again, I would probably not be a member of the 12-step fellowships. I would just stop doing those things. Like Nancy Reagan? Like Just say no is brilliant if you can pull it off. But in our literature, there's a great line. It says, a mere code of morals was insufficient because we could not live up to it even if we wanted to. We lacked power. And remember, this whole thing, this whole step process is about gaining power so that we can let go and let God, so that we can stop acting in behavior that's causing us fear. Right? So, I mean, a lot of these fears are very nuts and bolts because they're really kind of obvious. The problem is when I come into the program, a lot of the fears that I have aren't as simple as the IRS. They cause me to behave in ways that look like other things. They're deep-seated. They're deep-seated, and the fear has on a different costume than fear. Like, I might be uh, a bully, And I might not recognize being a bully as fear. And I might be a bully because I'm scared of what people think about me, and I think I can control the way people think about me by pushing other people around, either physically, emotionally, whatever. And I don't see it that way. I might be promiscuous, and I see promiscuous as an opportunity. Hey, you'd be promiscuous too if you could get away with it. When really the promiscuity comes from a deep-seated feeling of inadequacy, An inadequacy that no one can fill in me, a fear that I'm not enough, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not sufficient, that I'm not satisfactory to those around me. And the only way that I can feel satisfactory is that moment of promiscuity where someone's telling me, yes, you're handsome. Yes, you're a great guy. Yes, you're attractive. And the problem is, is that in my personal relationships, if I'm suffering with this fear 
of insufficiency, of inadequacy, and I don't really even know that's what's going on, then I'm doomed, one, to never feel satisfied with my partner's appreciation of me, be it my romantic partner, be it my partner in business, who I don't ever feel like really believes in me because I'm really not enough because I feel so inadequate. So I'm always looking to do things and push things and force things, and it's causing me problems. And, And people think, God, stop being so crazy, when really what they really should say is, stop being so fearful. Find out who you are and get a relationship with God and get comfortable with who you are, and you won't need that anymore. It's just like Alcoholics Anonymous does for my alcohol. I am not sober for 25 years because I have been successfully fighting the craving for drugs and alcohol. I am sober for 25 years because I followed some instructions, and I was freed from any desire or compulsion to use drugs and alcohol. Well, it's the same with these other things. I am not going to stop being compulsively anything because I decide it's a bad idea. I'm going to stop being compulsively addicted to any behavior, be it spending, be it sex, be it power trips, be it money. I already said money. I said it twice. So money and spending is clearly a problem for me. I am not going to get better from those things until I have a way of finding my way through this roadmap to have that compulsion and that desire removed from me. Because if I don't fight things very well, I'm obsessive compulsive. If I am trying to fight a thought, I am in the thought. And when I stay in the thought long enough, I behave and act on the thought. My only hope is to be able to have a relationship with God that can come underneath me and lift me out of that sickness and give me a chance to not even have that thought be a problem in my life anymore. I'm here to tell you, drugs and alcohol have not been a problem in my life for 25 years. If you would have told me that 26 years ago, I would have thought you were crazy. And I'm telling you right now that I'm sober 25 years because I am free from that compulsion. Well, this program also offers me freedom from these other compulsions. And most of those compulsions are seated in my fear. They are a way for me to mask my fear of the world. All right. So like we said, there's three parts. There's the resentments. There's the fears. We've talked about the resentments and the fears. And then the third part of the four step, and by the way, just and once again, for those who are listening, some of this language that David is using, like, uh, you know, that's because self-reliance failed us. This is all coming out of the book. So if you haven't read the book, get in and read that's the book. Uh, and so the third part that the book talks about during the, uh, during the four step is the sex slash relations Uh, Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think this is a little bit of the boogeyman for a lot of people because obviously out in the world of drugs and alcohol, there's a lot of promiscuity um, and a lot of stuff that people wind up doing. And um, in the worry that I'm somehow going to have to face this stuff in front of another person is a big boogeyman. It turns out that when I finally face these things in front of another person, which was not on my fourth and fifth step, it was early on in my sobriety this time, that I immediately had freedom, that I didn't have a person looking across from me judging me. I had a person looking across from me nodding and going, yeah, me too. I remember what, what Clovis said to me. He said, and Clovis was Clovis your was sponsor. my sponsor. We talked about him in one of the other episodes. He's whose son I uh, is now my son that I adopted. He looked at me when I was having a particularly hard time getting something out, and this is one on our second or third meeting. This is not during my fifth step. 
And he said, you know what, David, if I did that and you did that and everybody that I know did that, doesn't that make that normal? And I remember when he said that to me, because I was like on the verge of tears. I could not make the words come over my vocal cords, what I was about to tell him about myself. And when he said that, I just had this like alleviation of a pressure that was on my heart for so long that I was used to it. That when it was gone, it was like a weight being lifted off of me that I had become so accustomed to carrying that I thought that's the way everyone felt. And so that part of this kind of uh, emancipation, that is not what the third part of the fourth step is about. The third part of the fourth step may be about that if you haven't gotten to it, but the third part of the fourth step is how I behave in my sex relations, how I treat the people I'm in relation with. It's not necessarily the sex acts that I have participated in. In fact, it doesn't even ask me those. What it talks to me about is, you know, how do I manipulate people? How do I trick people to get my way? Do I go to people and I act like I'm in love with them so that I can have physical sex? Do I go to people and and shower them with gifts and expect in return that they give me what I want sexually? Do I purposefully arouse suspicion or jealousy in other people so that I kind of put them on edge all the time, so that I kind of own them? I think in AA, that's what we mean when we talk about we don't have relationships, we take hostages. Do I take hostages? Do I put people in a position where getting away from me is going to be more painful than just sitting out what I'm doing to you? Because I am so adept at manipulating you and making you in debt to me and taking away your freedom in your life because I'm going to control things. I'm talking about me right now, if you're wondering. I'm not talking about everyone in the general world. These are the things that I do. I mean, I've I've done that in girlfriend relationships. I've done it in marriage. I've done it my whole life. And how do I do this? What does it look like? Well, I'll tell you the number one thing for me, and this is without getting too personal or inappropriate. One of the things that I grew very adept at, and it was long before I ever had sex, I grew adept in figuring out what it was that people wanted in me, particularly women, what it is that they were looking for, and I became that person. And I created a facade and scenery and a whole world of what I was to that person. And the truth of the matter was because of my addiction, because of my inability to understand the fears and compulsions that come with those fears and the obsessive compulsive behavior, which demanded that I act in ways that were the opposite of that facade, eventually the facade fell down and the relationship was destroyed. And I did that over and over in my life. And so this inventory at its best for me And at its best means that I'm at my best, where I am able to see these things. Because an inventory doesn't mean anything for me beyond what I'm able to see in it. And the things that I'm able to see today, after many, many, many years sober, after the loss of a precious uh, family because of my behavior in sobriety, the things that I am able to see today, I wasn't able to see at one year sober or five years sober or 10 years sober. And I was actively working the steps. 
I wasn't able to open the door to a new place where everything about what I'm describing to you right now is able to change. This is the unpeeling of the onion that people talk about. I'll say this, this is an important thing, that when I become sober, the only thing I am is perfectly sober. I'm not a perfect person. One of the things I discovered when I was somewhere around 10, 15 years sober, and I share about it openly in meetings, is I used to think that I did those things because I was drunk. And the truth is, is that many of those things I got drunk so that I could do them. Well, I was hoping we'd get through four, five, and six. (laughs) Six and seven are good to do together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we, and I don't want to start into five because it's gonna, you know, it it could take a while itself. Mm. So... This has been uh, fantastic. Any any parting thoughts that you want to add regarding step four, the program and as a whole before we uh, end this particular episode? Yeah, all I would really like to say to end it, because I think I got pretty heavy there at the end, is we can only do what we can do today. You know, um, sometimes I'm not very easy on myself, you know? I uh, beat myself up for not being more perfect. And um, the fact is, is that we're all flawed. And for me, in many ways, I've been deeply flawed. And so a part of my sobriety and way, and one of the reasons I think that I've been able to stay sober is I'm not just open-minded about finding new things in the program. I'm open-minded about the possibility that God's going to make it possible for me to grow far beyond what I think is possible. Just like... I came into AA and I just wanted to get a crack pipe out of my mouth. I just wanted to get that beer out of my mouth. I just wanted to be able to put it down and be a better guy. And it is so far beyond anything I ever could have imagined. And it's the same thing at 25 years sober as it was at 25 days sober. Thank you so much, David. So if anybody wants to reach out to David or you want to reach out to me, I'm at a Feedback at SoberSpeak.com or John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. They both, both those emails come to the right, to the, to the same place. And uh, God bless you, David. Thank you so much for coming in here, sharing about step four. And uh, we'll have David back for, who knows, step five, six, whatever we're going to do <laughs> at some wait. later time. Good, good. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. How about David there? Isn't he something else? I could sit there and listen to David all day long. And obviously, I get to sit here with him while we're doing the recordings. And I can tell you this, uh, everything that David uh, uh, quotes in terms of the big book and in terms of uh, the 12 and 12 uh, and uh, in regards to his experience, uh, he has uh, zero notes in front of him. Uh, he's just doing all of that off at the top of his head. He, he is definitely a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I am so grateful that he can come in here and share that wealth of knowledge with uh, you guys. Uh, a couple of shout outs here, and then I'm going to get on to the listener feedback and we will wrap this up for the week. Uh, um, two people I wanted to recognize here. Number one is my beautiful bride, uh, Miss Shannon. Uh, she is the one who keeps up this website. Uh, she has been an encouragement for me since the beginning of this thing. Uh, she was actually there on the beginning of the of the podcast, and I'm not going to go into all that story, but uh, I'm just so glad uh, that she has uh, been with me this entire 
way. Uh, the other thing I wanted to do is give a shout out to Miss Cassandra. Cassandra is an Al-Anon who uh, uh, contacted me uh, a couple of months ago or so now, and I was having some issues with being able to keep up with the the workload, if you will, especially when it came to social media. And Cassandra has just taken the bull by the horns and she has been able to create uh, just so much content that we're able to put out on uh, Instagram uh, and Facebook. Uh, she makes these great posts and uh, I am just uh, uh, so thankful to you, Cassandra. Uh, as Cassandra says, uh, it takes a village, right? And uh, we all help each other out and uh, I am really, really grateful for all that you do. So, uh, now on to listener feedback and Courtney writes in on Instagram and she says, good morning, John. I wanted to drop you a quick note and tell you, I absolutely love sober speak double exclamation point. I listen to the podcast while I am walking with my 16 month old boy every single day. I have some faves so far favorites like Brenda J John M or Lena a, and I love the one with the Vanessa, the therapist, also. I answer the phones for our local intergroup office a few hours a week as a service commitment. And when someone calls in to find a meeting and we don't have one that fits their schedules, I turn them on to Sober Speak. I also listen with my husband, he isn't one of us, while I'm cooking dinner and it's helped him learn so much about the disease. I just wanted to thank you for your service and keep it up. I'm going to keep listening and keep coming back. Sincerely, Courtney D. from Wilmington, North Carolina. Well, Courtney D.'s husband and Courtney D.'s son, if you are listening right now while she is cooking dinner, thank you so much for supporting her, and I am so glad that you all were able to find it. By the way, Courtney, if you have an, an Alexa device in your kitchen, uh, my understanding is if you say, Alexa, play Sober Speak podcast, it will crank it up. So just kind of keep that in mind, not only for you, Courtney, but for everybody else. I absolutely love that email. Thank you. Or excuse me, a message, direct message. I'm getting into this Instagram thing here lately. Anyway, Barry writes in and to kind of uh, switch gears here a little bit. Uh, I had written a, excuse me, I didn't write. I uh, published uh, an episode, uh, uh, one of the episodes for sober speaking, it was called, uh, uh, it was a Valentine's message. It was said, happy Valentine's day to you from sober speak and Barry listened to it. And he said, Hey John, Barry here from London. I am a regular listener to your podcast. Today is February 15th, just after 11 PM, just gotten to bed after a very long day. My mother passed away this morning after a long battle with dementia. It's been a very painful process. Just wanted to listen to your podcast and fall asleep with it and hear your Valentine's message. It was a lovely message and very comforting, and I am still drinking after punctuated periods of sobriety. Your podcast much touch, much must touch the heart of many, including people like me who still struggle. Thank you, John. 
I listen to your podcast every night, and it brings me great comfort before going to sleep. Cheers, my friend, Barry. And I wrote back to Barry, and I let him know if there's any way that I can help uh, to please let me know. And uh, Barry, my friend, please keep me posted. Uh, uh, God bless you. God bless your family uh, in this, uh, what I'm sure is a very tough time. Tracy writes in and she says, hi there. I have been in the Frisco group since I got sober and I've seen you at birthday night over the years. By the way, Frisco group is my home group here in Texas. Um, I have really enjoyed listening to all the podcasts. I know a lot of people in Frisco, so it has been good to hear their stories since many of them I have not seen tell their story. Thanks for all you do. I recommend this podcast to all my sponsees and anyone in AA that does not know about it. It is an awesome service you are doing to carry the message. Thanks again. I appreciate you, Tracy. Thank you so much, Tracy. I look forward to seeing you eyeball to eyeball soon. Julie writes in and she says, uh, Dear John, and I've gotten a lot of Dear John letters in my life, nonetheless, Dear John, I have three and a half years of sobriety. I found your podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I have listened to every podcast that you have done. It has really helped me with my sobriety. I found your podcast on my iPad and on the podcast app. I was going through some issues with my ex-boyfriend, who is an active drinker, and I needed a podcast that would try to help with my ex. I love listening to your podcast. Thanks for all the work you do and that you have put into the podcast. This is my meeting between meetings, Julie. Well, Julie, first thing, first things first, uh, congratulations on three and a half years of sobriety. Sure do appreciate you writing in and uh, look forward to hearing from you again sometime soon. Anna, writes in on Instagram. And Anna says, I love your podcast. I was looking for something to listen to while traveling in Austin, Texas from, and I, and I am from Nor Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm actually listening in my car right now while writing this smiley face. Hmm. Anyway, I was missing speaker meetings and then came up on your podcast. Keep it up. I'm picking up my six-month chip tonight, and now more than ever, I know the sober life is for me. God bless you and your service and for providing your time to make this happen. I wish you the best. Heart, heart. I'll keep on listening, exclamation point, Anna. Well, heart, heart back at you, Anna. Um, Whenever you're writing me, uh, I would appreciate maybe if you don't write me while you're in the car. I mean, I love getting the messages, but eh, just go ahead and pull over next time. But nonetheless, congratulations on your six-month chip, and I'm glad the sober life is for you. Uh, Jane writes in on Instagram. She says, thank you for this outreach. My husband is an active alcoholic and my sponsor in Al-Anon suggested your podcast. I have found hope in the stories and I pray that my husband may share in that hope and strength someday soon. It has been very difficult to watch this terrible disease take over his life and try to destroy our family, Jane. Well, Jane, oh, I don't know what to say. You know, my 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 heart is heavy for you, um, and 
I, uh, I, I just pray that you and your husband can find the life that you're looking for. I can't tell you how many family members of alcoholics that I have talked that I have spoken with over the years. And, uh, and I know that this illness will indeed take over a life and destroy families. But I've also seen many times people come back up out of that. Um, and I pray that you are one of them. Thank you so much, Jane, for writing in and your vulnerability and your uh, uh, frankness. Uh, Catherine K. writes in, and Catherine writes in and she says, Hi, John M. I'm back, exclamation point. I have been in the Dominican Republic now for over three weeks and did not have constant Wi-Fi. I wasn't able to post photos or emails and sometimes not even text messages. I was able to download a few partial Sober Speak podcasts and listen to them while walking the beautiful Caribbean beaches. I was thrilled to discover that I was able to listen to previously downloaded episodes and that these became my, quote, non-alcoholic happy hour entertainment, unquote. (laughs) My, let me read that again, my non-alcoholic happy hour entertainment. I'm glad we can serve that purpose for you, Catherine. Anyway, she says, I was delighted to find that you really do review your mail as you have referenced a few of my Instagram posts and Facebook comments at the top of your episode program. This makes me feel that we, the listeners, are more than just faithful followers. As Sally Field remarked on her acceptance speech at the Oscars, you really care and our voices matter. Thank you for thank you for providing another tool for those of us who aren't able Aren't, aren't always able to attend a meeting. Your podcast really is a meeting away from meetings. My isolated location in the Dominican Republic did not have an AA meeting to help me navigate the road of the happy hour party people. However, your soothing voice and guest speakers provided me with reinforced messages like staying connected with my higher power, the importance of the steps one, two, and three, one day at a time, and keep it simple. So now that I'm back in the land of ice, snow, and frigid temperatures, I can get back to my daily updates of tuning in to John M. and your insightful messages from Sober Speak. Back in the old days, we used to say listening to elevator music in the doctor's office was torture, but through the wonderful world of technology, we can simply plug in our earbuds and listen to listen to meaningful and inspirational shows like yours. Feeling blessed and grateful for the Sober Speak discovery, Catherine K. Well, gosh, there's so much in there, Catherine. First of all, welcome back from the Dominican Republic, and uh, thank you for all your kind words. And uh, by the way, Catherine sent me a picture of her in the Dominican Republic and those beautiful beaches and a picture of her with her earbuds in listening to what I'm assuming is sober speak since that's what you were talking about here. So anyway, thank you so much, Catherine. So that wraps us up for another week. God bless you. And I do want to go ahead and read here just to wrap this up. Page 164 again from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Until next week, folks, we'll uh, look forward to getting out another episode next week, and and God bless you once again. Um, I talked about the people that help support this thing on the front end, uh, my wife and Cassandra, but I also want to say just thanks to all of you out there. Uh, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Um, this is the highlight of my week to be able to release one of these episodes and hear the feedback that you guys offer. And, uh, you know, you give me reason, uh, you give me uh, a purpose, uh, you give me uh, something that is worthwhile in this little thing called life. And um, we'll talk to you soon. God bless.